I'm sitting on a bus, staring out at the Greek landscape. I look to my left and let the rocky, white scenery wash over me. I'm at a point in my journey where I don't know how long I've been traveling and no book or podcast or music interests me. I'm God only knows how long into a 12-hour trip from Athens to the capital of Albania, tracing our way beside the Pindus Mountains. The landscape looks just like the drawings in the Greek mythology books I would read as a kid. We drove through this mosaic habitat, somehow barren and lush, wooded and scrub, light blue skies and periwinkle waters at the same time. Puffs of cotton candy pink clouds dwallop the heavens. I just stared outside the window. As we drove away from Athens, I couldn't help but think that these mountains are potential sculptures. Art trapped inside, waiting to be liberated. I turn around to the nearly empty bus and stare at the old couple behind me. The man drools on the shoulder of his wife as she stares down her reading glasses at a book. She was a portly little old lady with short hair that poofs out like a poodle. We made small talk when they got on. Somehow, I disclosed I was from New York and she was like, Oh, I have a sister in Queens, which is not the first or last time I will ever hear that sentence. Her and her husband were Albanian and going to visit her grandchildren. After a certain point, I get a pang of hunger and rummage through my snack bag. There's nothing much. Only a wet spanakopala and a singular mini donut injected with honey. I pop the dough into my mouth and I wish I had more. But shortly after, the bus turns into our first and only rest stop. It's a humble wooden shack, no trees or shade around. We go in and most of the eateries are closed. And then I rummage through my pocket to find that I only have a few euros left on me and nothing enough for real food. I do a loop and then sit down at a table and pull out my wet, cheesy pastry. Where the warm lights of the bakery had once given it a golden halo, it now looked like a sad pile of soggy, cut grass. This was all I had to eat for the next six hours. But then the Albanian granny and her husband pulled up to the table next to me. She wipes away someone else's leftover crumbs and rests her bag on the table. What she pulled out was a feast fit for Dionysus. Roasted chicken, mini boxes of cucumbers, peppers and onions, lentils, rustic bread, a box of fresh olives with a container to throw the pits away, and something wrapped in filo dough that somehow hadn't gotten soggy. She took one look at what I was eating and beckoned me to join her. Come, we have more than enough to eat, and Armand can't chew much because of his new dentures. After eating out of restaurants and European 7-Elevens for the past few months, there was nothing that tasted as good as a home-cooked meal, with a grandmother's care as an essential ingredient. Without hesitation, she portioned me a little bit of everything and gave me a whole roll to scarf down as well. During our 20-minute break, we talked about the sky rises of New York and the loud cabs of Queens and the deafening silence of the arid Greek landscape. Thank God we had a bus because there wouldn't be anyone driving around for a while. After traveling around solo for a few months, it felt good to be taken care of for a moment. Once it was time to get back onto the bus, I felt full from this woman's food and unquestioned generosity. Although it was wildly kind for her to do, she didn't have to do it. But there's a camaraderie that happens when you travel with strangers. A sense of, we're all in this together. There is an abundance of kindness in the world, but it often gets muted in light of one unfortunate event. And today, we get updates on disasters happening around the world with one look on our phones. The Iranian government shooting their people, Russia encroaching on Ukraine, or forest fires in the Amazon. Our brains literally can't handle that. The news was meant to report on the rare events. Before mass communication, we would get one maybe once a week, and our brains could handle that. But now the dam of the internet has broken and we are drowning in catastrophized stories. But what can give us hope is turning to the stories that we experience every day. The nice interactions you have with your librarian, the ongoing joke you have with your barista, the small talk you make with your subway seat partner, Kindness from strangers outweighs the disasters happening around the world. I mean, they're not nearly as entertaining. I just binge-watched the Chernobyl HBO miniseries. 
I couldn't get enough. But this is what I want to give you here. A million stories on kindness. Okay, a million is a little much, and I do respect your time. So how about 10 quick ones? My travels have been based on the benevolence of complete strangers. That's what inspired this podcast and keeps me moving. And I know I'm not alone in this. So here's a small sampling from travelers I interviewed for this podcast and their response to Tell Me a Time a Stranger Helped You. I'm Adrienne Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. Let's start with the little things. Kate, from our Alone episode, shares a time where she didn't realize that someone else was looking out for her. Yes, my favorite story of a stranger that helped me. I was in Thailand. I was going from Chiang Mai to Pai, which is this really cool small town with a lot of musicians way up in the mountains. Now, the road from Chiang Mai to Pai is famous for having 762 turns. They literally sell t-shirts that say 762 on it. Now, I get motion sickness ordinarily, and I know I can beat it if I look straight ahead, if I don't get into my phone, or if I don't read. Well, I didn't do that. I was in my phone the whole time, and of course, I started feeling incredibly sick. And we stopped at this little store halfway down with some picnic tables, and I just went to a picnic table, and I just sat down and put my head on the table. This French guy on the bus, who I hadn't even talked to, I hadn't even noticed, came up to me and brought me a cup of tea. Isn't that so nice? He's like, I saw you weren't feeling well, I thought this might help you. And that just touched me so much because it was so kind, so unexpected. He didn't have to do it, and it was a little cheap thing to do, but just so considerate. Absolutely. And like not asking for anything more. No. Just, hey, no. so you got an upset stomach. He also called me Kate Adventure for the rest of the trip. <laughs> That's, so That's really funny. Time is a precious resource. And it's extremely kind when people go out of their way and give it to you. That is how Rob from our Together episode felt when he was hungry and lost in China. I had a moment in China a couple years ago where I was severely jet lagged and starving. And I wandered out of my hotel at about seven o'clock in the morning, which for me was probably, I don't even know what time that was, maybe like two o'clock in the afternoon the prior day, give or take a few hours. I don't know. Anyways, I wandered out of my hotel and um, got mildly lost within a half a block of where I was staying in Xi'an. And this lady could tell that I was lost and she did not speak a lick of English. And I was just like trying to figure out, I didn't, my phone wasn't working yet. I couldn't translate anything. And so I just like made the motion of trying to find food. (laughs) And she walked me a couple blocks to this little tiny, like hole in the wall, like dumpling stand. And she helped me figure out how to get breakfast. Granted something she helped me get was full of some sort of black sauce that wasn't beans. And it might've been like eel blood of some sort. I don't know what it was. It was very strange. She like went out of her way on like early on a like Wednesday morning (laughs) in China to make sure that I had food because she could tell that I was lost and starving. (laughs) And I think, I don't know. I, I think about that every now and then just, that that was one of those like really special like moments that I had in a foreign land that I loved. It was just literally helping me with like the most basic need. And it was no more than 10 minutes of my entire two weeks there. And it was great. It was the best first impression I could get of the country. Some places have a reputation for being aggressive, mean, and fast-paced. Okay, you know I'm talking about New York. But Georgia Clark, who will be on our last episode about home, found kindness in the toughest of places. Strangers help me all the time. So, two nights ago, we bought this console of Craigslist. 
we like to we're buying some new things to the office and so I like to kind of go through we find we want on you know CB2 and then we plug it into Craigslist and buy it secondhand <laughs> and we went and picked up this console from this woman living in 16th Street between 5th and 6th and it was she's like it's not that heavy and we try and pick it up and it is so heavy like it is the heaviest thing like, and I'm like oh my god so we struggle to get it into the elevator out of the elevator building and we are parked like just outside my girlfriend and I were like, we like barely can lift this thing up. We get it, sort of, we get the car, we pull up into the middle of the street when there's no cars, we open up the trunk, which is called a boot in Australia, speaking of slang, we open the boot, and then we can't lift it to get it into the trunk. Like, we can just, we're like a few inches off, and this like cab pulls up behind us, and then cabs behind it, and I'm like, we have to get this in, like, we're blocking traffic. So we fly this dude down on a bike. We're like, can you help us? Can you help us? And then the guy gets out of the cab and we're like, oh no, he's going to yell at us. Like, cause we're like blocking traffic. And he's like, I have sisters. I'll help you. And so these two, like one guy that had been on a bike, the other cab driver came and like lifted up this enormous console and like shoved it into the car. And then we got in and drove off. So like that, and that happens in New York all the time. This is, you know, there's a lot of like tough things about this city and there's a lot of, you know, the weather is really shite and, you know, it's, it's sometimes you get home and you just feel like New York kicked your ass. Like, and it was like, you have a masochistic relationship with the city, but there is, it is a magical city and magical things happen like that all the time. And I feel like, I do feel like New Yorkers look out for each other and like all of those cliches about New Yorkers being self-obsessed, angry people, I just think are really untrue because I, if you ever have to ask for directions here or if someone asks you for directions, I really feel like people just cannot go, will go out of their way to explain to you what's going on and this is a magical city. Strangers help us out in our most vulnerable moments. Julia, from our Alone episode, shares a time where someone went out of their way to help her with no alternative motives. I mean, this is such a small thing, but uh, I was on the phone. Okay, I'm in San Francisco. This is before I'm going to get in the car. Sweet little Greta, who's a 2006 Subaru Impreza that I bought from my sister-in-law before I moved to Georgia for like seven Gs, and she's had lots of surgeries in between She's really running on her last leg. So through the course of this trip around the country, I've been, you know, taking her to, to get looked at. And especially uh, before I was going to, you know, put kind of 12 hours per day on her in the past week to get back to the East Coast. So I was taking an Uber because she was at the doctor's and I was on the phone with the Subaru office as they were telling me what was going on with her and how much it would cost. And I was bitching a little bit because they weren't, you know, as one does when you're told you have to pay 500 bucks for something you thought wasn't a problem. So my Uber driver is hearing all of this. You know, I hang up the phone. I sort of giggle and apologize to him. It's all good. And we're chatting about it. And I reveal that I don't really know how to check the coolant in my car. And that's one of the issues that my coolant was leaking and there wasn't time to replace you know, that system, but I would have to keep an eye on it as I went across the country. And this Uber driver pulled over, even though my ride was over and another girl was about to hop in. So I'd say both of these strangers were kind because this woman did not balk at the driver and my getting out of the car and he popped his hood and he showed me where the coolant is located and like what levels you would need to keep it on just took that extra time to educate me I thought that was really sweet he got a a big tip and but I didn't get the sense that he was doing it with that intention I mean I guess maybe I don't know but yeah it was really sweet those kind of small things really really do bring joy to my life People go out of their way to be kind when you least expect it. Laura, who will be on our last episode about home, and her boyfriend were hiking around a mountain in Korea and getting a little nervous about their food supply. 
when we were in Korea, we, this is maybe only just something small, but it always stands out for me. Like we, we were hiking in this like kind of countryside area in the mountains. So a lot of hikes in Korea that are along the coast are super like, like rugged. There's a lot of like cliff edges and, and we thought like, because a lot of places in Korea, when you go hiking, there's like restaurants and people selling water and yeah, like it's, it's pretty like built up enough. Um, so we thought it would be the same at, at this place. And so we only packed like these kind of little like bread snacks. They're almost like sweet breads. And then like a bottle of water each. And we went hiking and it started to rain, but only like kind of drizzling. And we probably hiked for like four or five hours with just like these little sweet breads. And we were running out of water. And we finally got to this temple, this like Buddhist temple that was near the kind of end of the hike. And... And then when we got in the temple, most temples in Korea have like one main building and then kind of like smaller, less ornate buildings off the side. So we were taking a picture of like the big ornate building with the colorful, you know, um, doors and, and facades and stuff. We were just taking some pictures and this monk came over to us and he asked, he kind of like mimed if we wanted him to take a, a picture of, of both of us. So he, yeah, he took a photo of us and then invited us in to have coffee. And he invited us into like one of the side buildings, which is almost like not painted at all, you know, just like plain wood doors. And we went in and it was just this one big room with like a kitchen sink and a little mini fridge and no furniture. <laughs> um, and yeah, we sat down and in Korea, a lot of the floors um, are heated from underneath. So it was like kind of warm and and yeah, and he was in his, he was in his like brown robes and bald head and very monk-like. So it was a, you know, an experience that we'd ne we, you know, we'd never had before. And, and while most people in Korea are super generous and are constantly like offering you things, we'd never had this experience in like a religious place. Um, so we were really nervous about like the rituals and the the protocol. You know, we took our shoes off, we went inside and he, he was so nice. He spoke like a little bit of English. Um, and we sat down around like on these pillows and he brought out a coffee like maker. And he, he basically like showed us how to make it. Like he didn't make it for us. We kind of were all three like making coffee. He handed the grinder and beans to, to Luke to like grind them. And then he gave me the water to like pour over the, the beans and stuff. And then he, we just got chatting about, um, you know, about travel. And he, he was talking about, uh, you know, travels in China and, and visiting Tibet. And, and we were talking about like the most ridiculous things like world peace and, you know, meeting strangers and learning languages in order to, like to better communicate with people rather than as some sort of like trophy that you speak another language, you know, like, and, it was really like a brief moment. We were probably only there for like 25 minutes, but like it was sort of this weird, like out of body experience. But in any case, the whole thing is that as we were leaving, we, you know, we, we brought, like we gave them the sweet breads to have with the coffee and stuff. And he asked us if that was all we had eaten today. And we said, yes. And he went into his fridge and he gave us his only loaf of bread that he had in the fridge. And then he apologized to us for not having other things to give us besides bread and like told us where to go to get more water. And like, it was just the nicest experience ever with like a complete stranger. It was like raining kind of a lot on and off, but there were all these little like temple sites along the way. So it was like particularly unusual that we stopped into this this one temple, you know, we didn't go into any of the other temples to take pictures or anything, like. Acts of kindness can dissolve the prejudices that the world has on certain groups of people. Pale, who will be on our grown episode, learn this firsthand, how to unpeel the stickers that we stamp on people based on where they're from. When I was in uh, Morocco in uh, northwestern Africa, I stayed in many different places and, and one of them was a small city called Tishnit. Not very touristy and, and I met a local butcher there that I became good friends with. Uh, he turned out to be super, super nice and, 
actually when I was talking to him over dinner, he said that uh, this is this is the real Islam. This is uh, not what you Islam is not what you see on TV and the Western world. This is the real Islam where we're nice and we help each other and we're friendly. And by the way, would you like to come and have dinner with my family uh, tomorrow night? And we became very good friends and are still to this day very good friends. Then I went on further south to a place called Tantan, and, I, and then I got pneumonia. And there weren't any any doctors there, not that uh, I would trust with looking at me. So I went back north to Tishnit and told my friend, the butcher, that I was coming. And he said, I will help you. And, and then he took me to the hospital and made sure that they understood what I was saying and helping me translate. And he even insisted on paying for my hospital bill. And even though I said, don't worry about that, I have insurance. And it wasn't, it was very cheap, by the way. So I could easily have paid for it myself. And, and, uh, but he said, no, 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 I insist. So it, it was totally surprising how, how friendly and how helpful he was uh, in, in, in helping me. And he didn't expect anything in return. He, he had a good um, butcher shop and a good family, and he was in no way rich, but he had a good life and wasn't expecting me to help him in any way. So it was very unselfish and uh, just helping me because that is what you do when you're a good Muslim, in, uh, is what he said. Strangers can sometimes be the unsung hero in moments where we're feeling desperate and alone. Anita, a New York City comic, and her boyfriend were saved when an unsuspecting stranger helped them out of a tight spot in Mexico City. We had a nice leisurely lunch at the airport, and then we got to our gate, we sat, they started boarding, and I couldn't find my passport, and then so began the mad dash. We split up so that we could cover more ground, you know, I met, I went back to where I put my stuff through security. The passport was eventually found, and by that time, the gates to our flight had just closed, and they would not open them. And at that point, I started to cry. I mean, truly, I have never cried so hard and so loud in a public place. And I remember I was you know, I was sobbing to my boyfriend. I said, I'm sorry, I've ruined everything. Please forgive me. And, you know, he said, you know, this is more upsetting just seeing you this upset. It's okay. We missed our flight. We asked our airline if we could get the next flight. And they said, sure, that'll be $1,400. And I started to cry again. And then fortunately, John is a smart guy. He looked up another airline, a very cheap airline, and found us tickets for the next morning for way less money. But now, our, then our problem became, are we going to sleep at the airport? I didn't know anyone in Mexico City. And at that point, I put out a call on Facebook. And eventually, I linked up with a lovely woman, a friend of a friend named Nydia, who we'd never met, but she and I had been corresponding for about a week because the big earthquake that had just happened in Mexico City, I mean, it had only been about three weeks after we went on our trip. So I had been talking to her because she lived in Mexico. And I was asking, you know, what are things that we can do while we're on the trip? Can we donate? Can we volunteer? So we were friendly in that way. We had talked a little bit. But here we were at 10 o'clock at night, this person I'd never met, and she said, you and your boyfriend could come stay at, at my home with my husband and I and our three dogs. And it was incredibly sweet of her. My and so John and I made our way to their to their house. Of course, as you do in a different country, uh, I led my boyfriend into the wrong apartment first, and the man inside was very startled, but he was very nice and pointed us to the the right house in this big complex. And when we got in, 
It was very late, you know, it was almost midnight. Nydia was eight and a half months pregnant, uh, and we were greeted by Nydia and her husband and the three dogs, Shiva, Ganesh, and Frida, the greatest names I've ever heard for dogs. And we got in. They had a twin-size bed for us to sleep on, which we happily took. And I remember it, it may have it may have had to do with the earthquake, but they didn't have running water. So I remember that uh, Nydia's husband took my boyfriend into the other room and offered him, offered us, you know, the supply that they did have of water, like big bottles of it and, and let us have some. And honestly, it was overwhelming because I was so set on being miserable that night and being angry and upset that, you know, we had missed this flight and, you know, had to stay an extra night, but it was overwhelming and undeniable that just proof of good people in the world, they exist. And I'm so glad that we, that we got stuck there for a night because I'm so glad that we met two new people, two very sweet people who John and I still stay in touch with on Facebook. You know, Nydia had a baby, the most beautiful baby. I'm constantly commenting on her pictures, and now she wants us to come back, you know, to visit. And, of course, you know, I want her and her husband and her baby to come here, and they can stay with me. And, you know, we made a new friend. And, you know, I hope that... I know that it's made me a less cynical person, having met, you know, strangers essentially having them so warmly welcome us it gives me hope of continued kindness that there's more of it in the world and I will definitely try to extend that kindness as much as I can because of of Nydia and her husband sometimes we find an opportunity to give and take and when there's a cycle of generosity it sets precedent for a deeper experience. That's how Dan Pashman from the Sporkful podcast felt when he picked up a hitchhiker on the side of the road in Scotland. My, my friend Gabe and I had a, an adventure. We were, we were in, living in London. We went up to northern Scotland, to the Scottish Highlands. We took the train up to Edinburgh, and then we rented a car, uh, hired a car, as they would say, and I did all the driving because I was owned to drive stick. And I, so I drove up, you know, wrong side of the road, left-handed stick shift. Um, and you're up way up in the middle of no. I mean, there's like you're driving. It's a one-lane road in both directions, and you have to stop because there's cows sitting on the road. That's how few cars come. And you just stop your car, and the cow looks up at you like, "What?" You know, like <laughs> like, like the cow is surprised to see you. <laughs> This is my road. Right, right, right. What like, what are you doing here? Like, obviously, I'm lying in the road. It's a perfectly comfortable place to lie. What are you doing with that giant, shiny thing? Um, and so we're up in the Scottish Highlands, and we picked up a hitchhiker, Damien, from Australia. And uh, he rode with us for a while around the Scottish Highlands, and we ended up uh, – there's a place called the Isle of Skye, which is an island. There's a bridge you can drive, but it's an island off the coast of the Scottish Highlands. I mean, just – absolutely so beautiful and this was in june so it's like the longest days in the northern hemisphere and that's very far north so the sun never sets completely it dips below the horizon at like midnight and comes back up at like three in the morning but it never gets pitch black and so we'd be driving and walking and hiking all day like to nine ten eleven o'clock at night like ten o'clock at night it's daylight and we ended up at this lighthouse on the one of the tips of the Isle of Skye. I think it was called the Neast Point Lighthouse. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And we hadn't planned to like camp or anything, but Damien had like cans of food because he was going to be camping. And we just like sat out on these rocks, these cliffs overlooking the water, 10 o'clock at night with the sun shining. And Damien cracked open his cans of, I don't know, soup, noodles, ravioli, whatever it was. I don't even remember what it was. I just remember like, you feel like you're sitting on the edge of the world with Damien. I feel like as you get older, people keep track. 
more. And it's like, like, it's like, well, we had these people over for dinner twice and they didn't have us over or like we owe them a meal because they invited us to the thing. And it's like when you're younger, it's like you don't keep track of that. It's like, well, we I'm trying to because I, I say this because I was thinking like, well, did we bring food or did we have food or Damien provided all the food? I don't remember if we also had food or if only he had food. I just remember he had these cans that he shared with us, but we drove him around and like it didn't really matter, you know. Right, right. So it's very generous of him to be like, hey, world-class soup here. Right, right, right. (laughs) Like, have at it. But I also just, like, I don't have any recollection of it being a thing that was, like, I feel like when you get older, there's more of, like, a, it's like, well, you don't want to accept too much of a kindness from other people because then you haven't, if you haven't reciprocated or, like, then you owe them. And what if you don't have anything to offer? Then you're somehow being, you're taking more than your share or whatever it is. And when you're younger, you're just kind of like, ah, It'll all come out in the wash, you know. That's so interesting. I very I had similar experiences when I've traveled abroad as well, where it's like, you'll give me back. Right. It's no big deal. Maybe it's something to do with traveling. Maybe yeah. it's not about age. Because little kids, are, you know, are selfish jerks. So it's not just maybe, – maybe we hit our peak of generosity, like between, you know, at, at – at, in our teens and twenties, or maybe that's just when we tend to travel and you have – so it's sort of where you get taken with a spirit of adventure – of like, let's just, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, you ride with us, give us some soup, whatever, it's cool. I'm not the only person who's based their travels off the kindness of strangers. Actually, Juan Pablo, a professional hitchhiker, has had quite a bit more experience with strangers than me and the average person. Juan Pablo has hitched through 90 countries since 2005. He realized that nothing is permanent, when his country of Argentina was hit by an economic recession in 2004. Everything you could have worked for could be gone in a flash. So he invested his time into something that could never be taken away, travel. He thumbed his way out of Argentina and over to Africa, hitting 90 countries within his travels and never paying for a ride. I was lucky to have a conversation with him in the West Village when he traveled to New York. I started by asking him what his original drive was to go out and hitch around the world. Excuse the commotion in the background. New York is a bit noisy. I mean, the world has to give me the chance to know the world. I think that in a way I started this trips because I had a previous worldview and I wanted to contrast it with reality. To see if the world would live up to my worldview or my expectations. The first thing Juan noticed was his unlimited empathy. And in a way, it has made me a much more, you know, empathic person. I think like the reason why I travel is like, in a way, yeah, it helps you to connect much more with anyone. Doesn't matter like where they're from. I mean, eventually, you have to learn to be empathic even with those people that you disagree with. It's a harder path. So, actually, I think like traveling literature literature should have the role of like to to develop empathy the more juan hitched the more he tapped into the social economics of kindness he believed that we've privatized our personal space and isolate ourselves and the times that we pop out of our turtle shells and let strangers hop into our cars or sleep on our couches isn't just a monetary exchange it makes us feel connected to something larger i have realized that people need that that's an interesting thing. So it's not like a one-way thing. People is helping you, but it's a transaction, which is not just happening on the monetary or like financial or material aspect. So whoever is deciding to stop his car or her car for you, or whoever is deciding to host you for the night, it's a great transaction. They are getting something from you, and you are it's an exchange. With all of his travels, Juan has become a messenger. A messenger for those who don't have quick access to the outside world or whose stories are silenced. He realized that sharing stories is actually an act of kindness. And for them, I mean, they, people would turn the TV off, you know, to, because you become like a messenger of the world that is not in their reach. So they're actually looking for you to host you and to, and also they're passing their message because, for example, I remember the Kurds, Kurdish people in northern Syria. They host me I, I remember a family that I was with them like three days and then when I left they say like Juan like, we need your pen 
like we need we wanted to talk about this you know like all the hardships we are facing because like Kurdish people in several countries they actually don't have all the rights they should have and they all sorts of things so uh, people actually no want to pass on their message when they see a traveler so in a way then that makes me you know feel like there's some sense to what I'm doing Juan has shared his stories on the kindness of strangers with everyone he's met. But he realized how these messages on how the world is kind and generous actually contradicts the pervasive stories on how strangers are dangerous. And he warns that we should be careful about where we source our information. Uh, our source of information, if it's just the mainstream media, then the way would be you build our, your opinions based on that, you vote your governments based on that, and you declare war, or someone declares war in your name thanks to that. So the information you grab should be as organic as the food you want it to be organic, you know? So we are caring too much now, now these days about how we get our food, where is it coming from? But the information we just let like Google tell us what's going on in the world. So what I try to do is like, okay, hey, like today I am Sudan, this wonderful family, look at us. I mean, just use social media in that, with that sense so people can peep through their phone and get access to some reality they're normally not able to access. So I had to ask him a time a stranger helped him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right, that a stranger helped me. Actually, most of the people that ever helped me were strangers. I mean, like, uh, we wouldn't be alive if it it weren't for, for, for strangers, you know, like, what about if your dad had never talked to your mom. In a way, at a certain moment, they were strangers. So basically, strangers is a condition for the continuity of life in the planet. For example, I can recall like a just moment, because like I, I remember this uh, when we crossed into Sudan from Egypt. Everyone in Egypt said that Sudan was filled with cannibals that would kidnap him and his girlfriend. Even the Argentinian ambassador for Sudan warned Juan against them going through it. So we were a bit afraid, of course. But then on the first day, we entered Sudan. Um, we got a ride with a pickup truck. And the guy left us in a town that was not his town, because he was going somewhere else. But we wanted to see that town. So he just dropped us off, walked to the first house uh, he saw, knocked the door, and left us there, just like a kittens in a cradle. You know? And I thought that was a kind of a guest house. And then a lady... Sh- exits the door, answers the door, gives a hug to Laura, and I thought, okay, this is definitely a guest house. And she's happy because she has customers. Gives a hug to me, now please come in, you can, do you want some tea? And then I was confused. Some people come by, <coughs> and then it, it, it turns out actually that it's not a guest house, it's just a private house or the closest thing to a private house that you can find in, in, in Sudan, sorry. So um, this family just, people, they had never seen us before. They just gave us house, a, a place for the night. And there was a man who was like the teacher of the village and I asked him if that was normal. And he said like, oh yeah, in Sudan, actually he said in Nubia, which is like the northern region of Sudan, in Nubia, you could just stay in any house any house is your house but he said it quite literally not just like in a metaphor like yeah he's like meaning like yeah yeah you can just stay there then tomorrow if you want to stay again you can stay there and like just and on entering the house I noticed that people had no furniture just these mad brick houses in the desert painted from uh, with different colors very colorful near the Nile under the palm trees and all the furniture would be beds they would use beds as tables they would sit down there to talk, and they would sleep there. And they would take out the beds to the courtyard under the stars because it's so hot, like, you know, so hot. So you would sleep under the stars, literally. So no one, two, three, four, five-star hotel, but it can be a million-star hotel, literally, under the stars. Every house is available for you. Everyone is readily available to talk with you. And that's Sudan. And whatever, what most people know about Sudan is that just that it suffered a, bo- a blockade from the U.S. in 1998. So, yeah, that's one stranger that helped us in Sudan the first night. 
Juan's life is a mosaic of stories about the times strangers were kind. I, I would not want an elite change it for any other means of transportation whatsoever. I, I would not want an helicopter. I don't want a, a hammer. I don't want. I just want my thumb. Like everyone's born with a free ticket to go around the world. That's your thumb. Where Juan has used his thumb to connect with strangers, Casey has used his computer. Casey is the founder of Couchsurfing, an online community that helps travelers connect with locals and stay at their place for free. Yes, for free. You can couchsurf in almost every major city around the world and has an unfathomable number of users. These are all people who believe that strangers can be trusted and enrich in our travels or the way that we view our homes. Additionally, if it weren't for our next guest, I would never have been able to travel the way that I have. So I asked him where he got this crazy idea to trust strangers. Okay, so a long time ago, I lived in a very small town in Brownfield, Maine, and it was under a thousand people that lived there. And I, um, I remember being in high school history class, and we studied the classic philosophers, and we got to the topic of free will, and I started to think about it. I thought, is it possible that I'll just live and die in this small town? Will I just do what I'm kind of caused to do? I don't know if I want that. I want to do something different, but then, well, how can I do what I don't even know I, I want to do? Because otherwise, right now, I'm a kid from a small town, and I don't even know what I don't know. So I just started buying random plane tickets around the world. And I noticed very quickly that it was hanging out with local people uh, that gave me the most powerful experience. So that was the inspiration. He goes on to explain that there was one specific experience that allowed him to test out the idea of staying with strangers. This is like one of the most formative culture stories. I was back, I was, start, I was working at my first company. I was living in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, and I got a cheap ticket to Iceland. Iceland Air was just started to offer these cheap tickets, but they were like next weekend, right? So this is 2000, I think. And I was going to be there for a long weekend. It was like Monday or Tuesday prior. And so I said, I can't afford staying in a hostel. It's too expensive. What if I contacted some people and stayed with them? I've got this idea of culture already kicking around in my head, but it, and maybe I could test out the idea. So... Okay, now what? So I messaged some, cal- some not Couchurvers, Couchurvers didn't exist at that point. No, I messaged, <laughs> I messaged some people that had Icelandic websites. Three people. I only found three Icelandic websites. And can I stay on your couch? Crickets, no response, nothing. Maybe, maybe somebody said, no, not, you can't stay on my couch. I don't know. Then I stumbled across the University of Iceland student directory and I was able to hack in and extract 1,500 names and email addresses and uh, of course, to get a, to get a name, you have to, to say, you have to type in the name of a student. And the only Icelandic name I knew was Bjork. So I typed in Bjork and I got lots of Bjork Stevens daughters and things like that and figured out how to get more names. And I had 1,500 names and email addresses and I put them all into a mail merge and I sent them all an, an, a personalized message with the quick script as a computer programmer, pretty easy. It said, Hey, Bjorn. I'm Casey, and I'm coming to Iceland. I'd love to meet you. And here's all the things about me that I think you might find are interesting. Maybe we could hang out. Uh, and then I had the opposite problem the next day. I had between 50 and 100 people saying, yes, come stay on my couch. We'll go to my grandfather's house in the countryside, drink vodka in the hot springs under the star. It's like, cool. All right. And so I had to go about the, the uh, interviewing people and figuring out what adventure. So I hung out with a few people in Reykjavik and Keflavik and beyond for a long weekend, and I left Iceland thinking, how could I ever travel another way? I just can't imagine doing that thing where you wander around like a ghost, take pictures of statues, and go. So that's why I said, I need to discern, I need to find out, does anybody else feel like this? Because I feel like I might be like the only one out there who feels this way. And time went by, and I was working in politics in Alaska, and then finally, I said, I'm not going to let another year of my life go by without finding out whether am I the only one or there are other people out there like me. Because I'd talked to some people, many people, most people said that's completely a thing. 
But some people said, that's a great idea. Let's do that. I want to do that. I want to be a part of that. And I, something magical happened at that moment. I had already had the idea for Couchsurfing, but I didn't know how it could work or what it would feel like. And I felt it at that moment. And I felt like I could do this. It was like, I didn't know if I could be that person who could do that thing, could like do something. I lived in a small town. I had no models for that. I didn't know anybody who did something. I could be that person. I could do that. I felt it. I felt it emotionally. It wasn't just like an abstract idea. And I got, it just, it just changed everything for me. So when I was working on this U.S. Senate campaign in Alaska, that was during the day. And at night I'd go home and I'd program on couchsurfing in the middle of snowstorms. And people would be like, come on, let's go out to the bar and let's get wasted. I'd be like, sorry, I need to see about a website. And then um, I launched it. And that was in 2004, beginning of 2004. Uh, and then it just started to take off. It was 6,000 people first year, 30,000 people the next year, 100,000 people the next year, 300,000, a million, and so on. I asked him why he thinks this crazy idea spread like a bug and infected those who came across it. Um, I'd say that, first of all, when you're traveling and you travel maybe in the old way where you'd walk around, do, go on a tour, take a picture and go to your hotel, well, you start to get, you feel a little empty after a while. Like, I don't know, something wrong. I kind of want to go home. I feel either lonely or something. And I think that has to do with lack of community, lack of appreciation, basic needs. You just don't have your basic needs met. And so you're like, I'd like to go home and meet those needs. But when you're traveling and couch surfing, you get your basic needs met. You People appreciate, hey, thanks for coming here. Hey, thanks for hosting me. Hey, thanks for spending your time. Hey, thanks for making me that meal. Hey, whatever. Um, all of that stuff. So you get a nice little package of needs getting met. So I think for me, what couch surfing does is it allows us to travel further, farther, better, deeper, um, stronger, all that stuff, and meet our basic needs. It's more sustainable from a person, from a person life perspective. For me, it, you get to feel that feeling of we're all the same, yeah. but then you get to at the same time feel the feeling of and we're different. So it's like we're it's it's a funny duality of we're the same and we struggle the same way as humans, and we feel that human connection and wow, look at the nuances of how we're actually different. It doesn't mean that we're not connected. We're connected over these other things, but then there are differences and the nuances of how we go about living our lives is interesting. And thank God that they were different. It's like you can see yourself when when you, I mean, I don't like to compare or maybe comparing is not good, but we compare as humans. And when you can compare, when I compare myself to, when I compare myself to somebody who's in my own culture, it's easy to get into a comparing in a weird way, maybe not in a productive way, right? But when you're comparing yourself to somebody who's just so different, it's just not really even a comparison. You get to see something more philosophical, a bit more abstract. So you get to learn more, I think. So if we love having a community base when we're traveling, why are we still distrustful of strangers? Um, Really, I think what we're afraid of is strangers that have no repercussions, that no repercussions from doing something bad to you and they can disappear into the internet and they're gone. And And we just didn't really know whether people out there were safe or not. But I knew that if we could create a reputation system within this couch surfing thing, that it would be great. I asked him if he still couch surfs and let people know that he's the founder. It's a mix. It's a mix. So a lot of times I'll go with like a friend and it'll be, I kind of like be on their profile. So that's, that's pretty fun because then I can be like just me. Um, Sometimes I'll go and I will just message people, but most people won't like a lot of times people don't, don't always read profiles. And I don't really say like, I'm going to foster found or anything like that. Or you might have to like figure it out. So people are just like, Oh, you look cool. And you get a lot of positive references. Great. And we, they like, go and come to Couchsurf and leave and they have no clue. It just depends. And then some people are like, Oh my God, I've wanted to meet you forever. And if they know the first half hour is more predictable. Uh, like, there's certain kind of questions that happen. But after that, it could go in any direction. And it's, it just takes a half an hour to kind of get that out of the way. When I couch surf, I always give something back, either help them clean or buy them dinner or a small little gift. I ask Casey what he does when he's a guest in a stranger's home. Oh, yeah. Wash the dishes. That's for sure. Clean up tables. It's like really clean up really well. 
uh, leave things better than I found them. It's, I can even look at it through the lens of cooperation theory, where you know we all get more when we all help each other. Additionally, um, I like like my languages of love are kind of more like quality time, um, and so I like that deep conversation that could be life changing. My travels would not have been as deep, as wild, as riveting, or as memorable if I didn't couch surf. I have stayed with close to 70 strangers in 35 countries and have truly unique memories that can never be published in a guidebook or sold as a travel tip. These are mine to treasure forever. When I'm an old woman, they will keep me feeling alive during my last few days on this planet. Casey, when you hear this, thank you, thank you, thank you. My travels were based on the benevolence of complete strangers. People took me into their homes, let me wash the world off my body, gave me a hot meal and warm company from all walks of life. I wouldn't have created this podcast if I didn't notice that strangers were the ones who fueled my travels. Kindness is the simplest and most rewarding thing to give. I wrote this episode before COVID-19 was a microbe, but I'm producing it in quarantine. I originally wanted to suggest to set an intention to be kind to a stranger today when you go out on a walk or leave the office. But I hope that your time in solitude has shown you that it isn't just the big relationships in our lives that make us feel purposeful. It's the little ones too. Chit-chatting with your barista, small talk with your subway seat companion, making a joke with your table neighbor at a coffee shop. I miss walking through my neighborhood and feeling that elation when everyone is outside on a sunny day. My days glitter when I have little interactions with people who I may never meet again. When we talk to strangers, it reminds us of the larger nexus that we're a part of, this intricate globe that we walk on, and it shows us how to tend to it. When we pass kindness from one person to the next, We take care of the larger whole. The more people we connect with, even just for a minute, helps keep our faith in humanity afloat. Kindness is a stepping stone to transcendence. During this time in isolation, I'm thinking about what a blessing it used to be to help someone else. So the next time you find yourself in a position to help someone, in quarantine or in person, please take it.